Recently, I finished reading the autobiography of Vice President Mike Pence, which was an interesting read. And the way the book opens, he grabs your attention by taking you right to the events of January the 6th. And then he backtracks and talks about his life and things in it. And then the book ends by talking again about January 6th. And as I got to that last chapter, I was reading it and I thought, this sounds really familiar. So I flipped back to the first chapter and I looked and I thought, sure enough, it is word for word the same in places. And I don't think he did that because he was lazy in writing. I think he did that because in chapter 1 he was drawing people into his story and then in the last chapter he's bringing them out of the story. And this week as I was studying Joshua chapter 4, it occurred to me that that is a literary device that he used that is also used by God in the book of Joshua. So I'd invite you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 4 this morning as we pick up the story of Israel's crossing of the Jordan River into the land of promise. There's a lot of repetition in chapter 3. There's even more in chapter 4 as it repeats things from chapter 3. And I don't know about you, I I don't think it's just me, I think it's kind of characteristic of most of us in the Western world, we get kind of impatient with repetition. Just get to the point, you know, I I, I kind of tune out when I hear the same thing over and over. And so as we look at chapter 4, there's that danger of tuning out. But I want you to understand that God is using a literary device here to drive home a couple of truths to us. He's talking to us in this chapter about what it means to have a life of purposeful pursuit. See, Israel has already crossed the river by the end of chapter 3. They've learned what we saw last week, that God's presence and God's power call us to trust and to follow, even if the way ahead is unknown. And we reach the end of chapter 3, and Israel's across. And we think, okay, now we're going to move on with the story. And instead, chapter 4, verse 1 says, now when they'd all finished passing over the Jordan, and it comes right back to some of the same things again. And that's by God's design to teach us, to drive home to us a couple of requirements if our lives are going to make a difference, if they're going to be lives of purposeful pursuit. And the first one, driven home heavily, as we'll see, by that repetition isn't rocket science, and yet God drives it home again and again because even though you and I know this, we often forget. If our lives are going to make a difference, we need to obediently follow God's Word. Last week, we saw as Israel had to sanctify themselves and then as they had to stay back from the ark, that following God is a holy task And that's really the theme that is being picked up here, that following God requires holiness. It requires obedience to what God has to say to us. And so let's notice how chapter 4 opens. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones 
from here out of the midst of Jordan and from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And then verse 8, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. You see the repetition? It's like, okay, I get it already. But God is doing this for a reason. What we're going to see in this passage is that, that God sometimes will give a command, and then we get the, the follow-through, and then we get the report of the obedience. And so it gets hammered two or three times to show us the importance of obediently following God's Word. The first example is God commanding Joshua who in turn commands the 12 men. God speaks to Joshua in verse 1, who speaks to these 12 representatives of the tribe, who then do exactly what is commanded. And so I've kind of thrown it up on the screen for you with sort of a color coding to help you see the repetition and the obedience, the follow-through, and then the report of it. There have to be 12 men, one from each tribe, and there are. They're to take up a stone from the middle of the Jordan where the priests stood, and they do. And they're to carry them to the night's camping site eight miles away, and they do. And so there's this theme of obedience that's highlighted in verse 8 with the phrase, the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and just as the Lord told Joshua. So they are obediently doing what God has called them to do. Israel's united in that obedience. One man from each tribe, even though two and a half tribes are going to stay on the other side of the Jordan and just send their soldiers, there's a representative from every tribe. The whole nation is united in their obedience. And then we struggle a little bit with the 12 men who are chosen, because if you remember back in chapter 3, Joshua chose those 12 men, and then nothing more is said. And now in chapter 4, verse 1, God tells Joshua, choose 12 men. And you say, well, did he do it back here or did he do it here? Well, Hebrew, the way Hebrew works, God said or God had said is going to be the same grammatically. And so very, very well may be that verse 1 of chapter 4 is just reflecting back. God had told Joshua to pick these 12 guys. Now we're going to find out what they're supposed to do. But the point of the verses is... Obedience, obediently following God's word. We get a second example. God speaking to Moses, God speaking to Joshua, Joshua speaking to the priests. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4. For the priests bearing the ark stood still in the midst of the Jordan. Now remember, that's what they were commanded to do, right? Joshua had told them back in chapter 3, go stand, put your feet in the water, it'll part, then stand in the middle. Now we find a report of their obedience. They had stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua, who then had commanded them. 
to tell the people according to all, and this is an interesting phrase, that Moses had commanded Joshua. We have no record of Moses giving a command to Joshua about the crossing of the Jordan. But apparently he had said something, and so God had told Moses, Moses tells Joshua, God tells Joshua, Joshua tells the priests. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before or in front of, in the presence of the people. And so there's this emphasis on God says it, the people do it, it's reported that they indeed did it. Then we get a third example. Moses talking to the two and a half tribes. Joshua talking to the two and a half tribes. If you remember back in chapter 1, two and a half tribes had asked Moses years before if they could stay on the other side of the Jordan. And Moses had said, yes, you may, but you need to send your soldiers over to help the other tribes. Then in chapter 1 of Joshua, Joshua reiterates that and tells these two and a half tribes, you have to send your soldiers across the river to help your brothers take the land. And so we read, In chapter 4, and I've put chapter 1 over there so you can see the correspondence, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And so they cross, they obey, they do what they had promised and what they were called to do. And then there's a fourth example God speaks to Joshua, who in turn speaks again to the priests. God had commanded back in chapter 3, priests go and step into the water. Now in chapter 4, we highlight their obedience, and now we highlight their obedience again, because God commands Joshua to command the priests to leave the water. Look at verse 15. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan. And you're thinking, okay, I get it. That's the point. They obeyed. Command, follow through, report of obedience. And the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground. The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. You know what that also tells me? It wasn't just the priests who obeyed God. The Jordan River obeyed him too. It stopped, and once everything was done and the priest left the water, boom, it came back at the command of God. Obediently following God's word is critical It's critical to having a life that makes a difference, to a pursuit that has purpose in life. And so Israel crosses the Jordan on dry ground, just as God promised. Why? Because they obeyed. And you might remember in chapter 3, God promised Joshua, I will today exalt you in the eyes of all Israel. Joshua obeyed God, and guess what? Chapter 4, verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Moses commanded Joshua. Joshua commanded 
the people, the people obeyed, and something was accomplished. They enter the land, and Joshua is lifted up as their leader, all because he obeyed. And if you and I want our lives to count for anything eternally, that's the key. We must obediently follow God's word. A man by the name of Brian writes into a magazine I subscribe to talking about his wife who was raised in Australia, went to a pretty rough high school in Australia where there were very few Christians. But one teacher by the name of Dave Bunton was a believer. And as this man got to know his wife and her circle of friends, he discovered that after high school, a number of her friends had come to faith in Jesus. And some of them had even gone into the ministry. And he was kind of intrigued by that. And so he searched out this teacher, David Button, and he told him what had happened. By this point, he was retired. He was in his 70s. And when he told him the story, the teacher choked up with emotion. And he asked him, what did you do? And the teacher said, there was very little that I could do. But many times, he said, I prayed softly over my class as I sat at my desk and watched them work. There wasn't much more he could do, but he faithfully did what he could. He faithfully obeyed, and God honored those prayers. And after they left his class, after they left high school, God used those prayers, and I'm certain the work of other people, to draw people to himself. And the point is, very often obediently following God isn't big and splashy. It's not seeing all kinds of major results that you might know about. It's not doing things that that people step back and say, whoa. It's just being faithful where God has called us and obediently doing what he's called us to do. And that begins with placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. If you've never done that, if you are here this morning or you're watching online and and you would say, I have never trusted in Christ alone as my Savior, that's where this all begins. Everything else we're talking about won't happen until you have that personal relationship with God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And once we have that, then we obediently follow God's Word. So the next step would be to be baptized, to step out and say, yes, I want to be identified with the people of God. And then to be part of a church where God's word is being taught and people are serving and you join in serving and giving and interacting and helping one another. Obediently following God's word means that that you and I then take the time to spend time in the word and to listen to what God has said is saying, and to talk to him in prayer. Obediently following means that if you are married, you step down into the water and love your spouse, even on the days when it's hard. You step into the water as a, as a student, as a child, by obeying your parents. You step into the water and get your toes wet by obediently following God and acting in an ethical way, a life of integrity in your business, even if it costs you contracts, even if it costs you your job. You live with integrity at school 
How you live that out. See, it's not the big and flashy most of the time. For most of us, it's just doing the day-by-day, daily obedience. But that all starts with knowing Christ because we can't obey without him. And what we're talking about is not just kind of a moralism of doing good things. It's living out our faith because we know Jesus. I'd remind you, these Israelites were God's people. They had been redeemed by power and by blood out of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai where they're given his law as his people, and now they are called to obediently follow, not in their own power, but because they've been redeemed. See, a requirement for a life that makes a difference, for purposeful pursuits, is obediently following God's word. And I think that's important for us to grab a hold of because we have some things going on in our country right now. Most of you are aware of it. Some of you have asked me questions about the the revival that's going on at Asbury and Cedarville and some other places. And, And the reality is, as you study historically what revivals are, we probably aren't going to know how much God is doing and how genuine it is right away. Revivals involve repentance, people turning away from sin and walking with God, and that takes some time to manifest itself. Revivals mean people are coming to faith in Jesus, and that's happening, and we ought to thank God for that. Whatever is going on, we ought to thank God for that. But revivals also result in people obediently following in daily life on into the future, a long-term obedience. And so we look at what's happening and we say, God, please let this be the beginning of real revival. And we watch for lives to be changed by it. I told in the first service, um, some of you will remember Ken Goodenough, Ken and Janine moved to Florida But Ken and I used to pray together before the service, and I heard him so often pray, Lord, please bring a revival. I have never seen a revival in my lifetime, and I'd like to see one before I die. Well, maybe he's seeing one. I don't know. You don't know. But what we know is God is doing something, and what we need to look for is, is there obedient following coming out of this? Is there repentance and faith? Purposeful pursuit requires obediently following God's word. It also requires intentionally remembering God's acts. We need to intentionally remember, call to mind, because we are so prone to forget what God has done for us. In fact, what we see in this passage is another instance where God calls on his people to celebrate what God has done for us. This time they do it with rocks, which is kind of an interesting way to do it. That's what, it is. That's what the 12 rocks taken out of the midst of the Jordan are all about. God commands them to use those rocks as a way to remember forever, as a lasting memorial that this may be a sign among you, verse 6, when your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? I love that last little phrase. Don't jump right over it. To you. Mom and dad, what personally has God done for you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. 
When it passed over Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. I think God had in mind that they would go to that spot, Gilgal, I don't know, once, twice a year, and they would point at the rocks and they'd say, let me tell you kids what God did when he parted the waters of the Jordan and led us into this land. Much like you and I might take our families to the Vietnam Memorial or the World War II Memorial or the 9-11 Memorials and say, don't forget what happened here. The rocks were taken from the spot where the priests stood. They were evidence of what God had done for them. They were a sign. They were a pledge, a teaching tool. They were a memorial, something that would draw attention to the past. And they were to set them up as standing stones. We see those all over the Old Testament. Abraham sets up pillars. Jacob sets up pillars. Samuel sets up one, calls it Ebenezer. You know, this far God has helped us. Well, this was a pile of stones to remind Israel. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, verse 19. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. They obey again. And they set up this pillar to remember what God had done. But apparently Joshua set up a second pillar. Verse 9, And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, if you have an NIV, it will read a little bit differently. The Hebrew is not absolutely certain. The NIV kind of combines and says there's just one pillar at Gilgal, and Joshua had taken them out of the middle of the river. But the better translation, in my view, is what the ESV has done and said there's a second memorial. Not commanded by God, but not disobedient either. Joshua for himself sets up this pillar in the middle of the Jordan and he writes, because I think he wrote most of the book, that when the Jordan isn't at flood stage, you can still see them. They're still there when Joshua's alive. And they're right where the priests were standing to say this is where it happened. This is where God did it. So what were they to remember? Whether it was the pillar in the water or the pillar eight miles away at Gilgal. They were to remember what God did and how he did it and who it was, Jehovah God, that did it. It's interesting that in verse 3 and then again in verse 8, there's a phrase repeated. They're to lay the stones down and they laid them down. It's actually the, the common word in the Old Testament for rest. They're to put the rocks at rest. And if you know a little bit about the theology of the promised land of Canaan, it was the rest that God promised to Israel. Now, they were going to have to fight to get it, but they were going to be free of bondage in Egypt. They were going to be done with wandering in the wilderness. They were going to be at rest. And these rocks were at rest to say, you've left the wilderness and you are in the place of rest. But even more than that, there is another remembrance that these rocks are tied to. You may have read right past it because most of us would. But it talks about all this happening 
on the 10th day of the first month. Okay, nice calendar reference. No, 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 there's significance. The 10th day of the first month was the beginning of Passover. It was the day on which the lamb would be chosen. Forty years before, it was the day on which the lamb's blood was painted on their doorpost so that the death angel wouldn't visit their house Forty years before, they were getting ready to leave Egypt and to cross the Red Sea in redemption. God is tying these two events together, and he's saying it's like a, almost like a new Passover. It's a new redemption. You're starting anew in this new land. By the way, you might remember last week I asked, why didn't God just take them across after the flood stage? Well, here's another reason why. He wanted the timing to be such that Passover The crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan are linked in the minds of the people and celebrate them. So we celebrate. We celebrated together the Lord's table, a time to remember. Every time somebody is baptized, we're remembering God's work in their life to draw them to himself. Maybe we need to establish some of our own celebrations. Maybe when we celebrate our birthdays or our anniversary, we ought to make them not just about us, but about God's faithfulness in giving us another year of life. God's faithfulness in allowing us to be faithful to one another for another year in marriage. Maybe we ought to celebrate, if you know the date, your spiritual birthday as the marking of when God brought you from darkness to light. We need to remember and celebrate what God has done for us. And we need to share what God has done for us with others. That was part of the whole point of the rocks. Verse 21, And he, Joshua, said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? See how that parallels verses 6 and 7? Then you shall let your children know. Very literally, it's a strong statement. Then you shall really tell them what happened. You shall cause them to know what happened. Well, what are they to cause the children to know? Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. There's that linking again. Which he dried up for us until we passed over. Kind of an interesting phrase that he uses. He says, he dried the the Jordan up for you. He dried the Red Sea up for us. What us? Well, Joshua and Caleb and some of those people who were little kids when it happened. Why does he bring that up at this point? Think about that for a minute. We'll come back to it. But what are they supposed to do? They're to teach the children what happened. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. They dried up. What happened? You passed over. Who did it? The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was there. The Lord your God, verse 23, twice. Yahweh did it. And the children were to know, and the word is experience. They were to experience what happened, even if they were little or not even born yet, when the parents pointed to the rocks and said, this is what God did. They were to experience it through the testimony of, of their parents, to what God had done. I think the reason that Joshua references the Red Sea here is because of what happened afterwards. All of Israel saw God part the Red Sea, 
And within days, they were murmuring and grumbling. Within a year, they were refusing to enter the land. The Red Sea didn't get remembered. And Joshua is saying, don't do that with the Jordan. Remember. Remember what? Verse 24. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. But guess what? It didn't happen. Judges chapter 2. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And then verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Those are tragic verses. And and I'm sure there were Israelite moms and dads who faithfully pointed to the rocks and said to their kids, don't forget. And they forgot anyway. But I'm also sure, given human nature being what it is, that there were a lot of moms and dads who didn't recount what God had done, who didn't point to the rocks. And the result was, within a generation, everybody forgot what happened. And the pile of rocks just became a pile of rocks. And God says, my goal in parting the Red Sea and in parting the Jordan was that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And that happened. Chapter 5, verse 1, the Canaanites were terrified. And that you, my people, may fear the Lord your God forever. And the fear there is not a craven, cowardly, it's holding God in awe. And in fact, if you trace the idea of the fear of the Lord through the wisdom literature, through Psalms and Proverbs particularly, you know what you'll find? It's pretty much equivalent to obedience. So we've come full circle. Remember, so you obey and follow God. Purposeful pursuit requires celebrating what God has done for us and sharing what God has done for us with others. On March the 11th, 2011, a tsunami hit Japan. Thousands of people died. Millions of dollars of properties were destroyed. But there was one village, a village called Aneoshi, where nothing was destroyed and nothing was lost. Because you see, scattered around that part of Japan, there are stones like this one. Now, my Japanese is a little rusty, but uh, what, what I am told these stones say is something like this. If a tsunami hits, it will come this high. Don't build below this stone. And the people of that village didn't build below the stone. They remembered and they obeyed and they were spared. And I think that's a great reminder to us that we need to remember. We need to celebrate the Lord's table so that we remember Maybe you need to do scrapbooks, not just so you think about the good times in your family, but so you remember what God did. Several years ago, Peggy painted some rocks for our kids and for us and encouraged them to continue to do it. And they say things like, Caleb, 22090, tomorrow's his birthday. Or House on Joyful Street, 1986. Or Berean Baptist Church, 2009. 
just a way to remember. Last year, one of our kids gave me, and had already given Peggy one, grandfather's journal. I hate writing by hand. And I wasn't going to do it three times. And so I took this as a basis and I wrote up my memories. Now, this is a secular book. It didn't have anything in it about God and what I remembered, so I had to include that because I want my children and my grandchildren, maybe they're my great-grandchildren, to know how God worked in my life. So they're encouraged that God still works. Maybe you need to have a mission statement for your family or some core values for your family. Maybe you need to sit down around lunch today and just talk about what God has taught you this week or what God is doing in your life. We need to remember. And when God gives you a great victory, something happens good in your life, make him the hero and celebrate what he's done. Because you see, we need to intentionally remember God's acts. And if we want our lives to make a difference, then that intentionally remembering is part of obediently following God as well. Like that village in Japan remembered and obeyed and was spared. One author says this, we are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor by conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. How does the Spirit of God ignite lives? We obey. We obey what God says. So remembering God's faithfulness and powerful redemption should drive us to obedience. The memory of what God has done for us should produce obedience to what God has said to us. So my challenge for you this week is to remember and to obey. Let's pray. Father, we are a forgetful people. Thank you for giving us the Lord's table to remind us regularly of what Christ has done for us. But help us in our daily lives to remember and help those memories to drive us to do what you've called us to do so that our lives have an impact, so that our pursuits are purposeful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.